reporter and I'm the chief intelligence strategist here at FireEye. That means I spend my days talking to people who are much smarter about cybersecurity than I am. I'm pleased that today I get to share one of those conversations with you. With me today is Jared Simrau, manager of analysis for our vulnerability and exploitation team here at FireEye Intelligence. Jared has been with the FireEye family since 2010 when he joined iSight Partners and of course was part of our January 2016 acquisition of iSight. Prior to that, he received degrees in intelligence studies, telecommunications, and business and liberal arts from Mercyhurst College and from Penn State University. So, Jared, welcome. Yeah, thank you very much, Chris. I'm glad to be here. So, we're going to be talking about vulnerabilities today. Um, you know, that's kind of an ambiguous term, right? Some people use the word vulnerability to mean technical vulnerability, but sometimes you hear discussions about vulnerabilities as conceptual or operational. Here's a vulnerability in that organization's security process. So. Why don't you do some level setting for us? Tell us what you mean by vulnerability on this analysis team. Well, I mean, you're absolutely right that vulnerability is one of those terms that I think everyone has like their own little definition of. Uh, but the, the basic definition that we use uh, on my team is that a vulnerability is a flaw or weakness in a particular software or hardware uh, that could be manipulated by an attacker to have some sort of security impact on a vulnerable device. Now, that security impact is the key component here. Uh, it's not enough to simply do something unexpected or annoying. Uh, it has to put the system security in jeopardy to be considered a vulnerability by us. Uh, also, something that comes up a lot, we don't consider abuse of legitimate or intended functionality, um, such as macros, which is a common example, um, to be a vulnerability. Uh, as many of these types of things already have built-in security measures to mitigate against their abuse. Okay, so you're, you're at that next level, adding insight into sort of what, what the adversaries are doing. Um, you know, I think that gets to a sort of a natural debate that I've heard, which is, uh, you know, how many vulnerabilities are there? What's the naturally occurring rate of a vulnerability? Is it something that's inherent to the code, or is it something that threat actors are causing to happen? Um, what's your sort of philosophy behind what causes vulnerabilities to even occur in the first place? Well, in terms of specific causes, there's obviously a lot of different uh, factors that can be taken into consideration, but um, as you mentioned, at its core, I believe that vulnerabilities are an inherent part of modern software and hardware development. Um, that's not to say that it would be impossible for somebody to write code that would be devoid uh, of a vulnerability, uh, but the reality of modern development is it makes it exceptionally hard to avoid. You know, take, for example, even like the simplest app on your mobile device. Um, these contain tens, if not hundreds of thousands of lines of code. So while this has resulted in exceptional leaps in functionality, it has also resulted in vendors being unable to test every single possible interaction, resulting in vulnerabilities that get through the testing phase and into live environments. Um, that isn't to say that there aren't vulnerabilities sometimes caused by ignorance, neglect, or poor practices. That's definitely the case. But even the most careful developers will be responsible for the introduction of vulnerabilities in some cases. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me, Jared. Um, I guess the, the question that I have is, is, you know, organizations share information on the vulnerabilities that they're aware of. A lot of that information is public, and it's a normal part of the business process to um, oversee the, the patch management that's specific to one's environment. So if vulnerabilities are known issues, uh, why can't customers protect themselves? Well, I think there's a couple different issues here. Um, first of all, you know, it, it takes time and effort to adequately test and patch systems to ensure that organizations' operations 
you know, will not be negatively impacted by the introduction of new code. Further complicating matters is that there's an ever-increasing volume of vulnerabilities uh, that organizations have to deal with and only have a limited amount of resources to deal with these patches. Uh, based on some of the discussions that I've had with our Intel customers, the problem is that they are no longer able to focus solely on which vulnerabilities they should patch first, uh, but in many cases are increasingly being forced to make difficult decisions on what they can get away with you know, without patching at all. Therefore, by the time an organization gets around to patching a vulnerability, it may already be too late for them. Mm. I think that answers my, my follow-up question, but uh, you know, to what degree does patching protect you from attacks in the first place? This is, you know, a lot of times after organizations, particularly for, for big widespread attacks, I think there's a lot of blame that's cast on victim organizations, a lot of blame the victim. Mm -hmm. Uh, to what degree are they at fault, or how effective is patching in the first place? Well, I, I think under the use of proper patching, um, you can definitely protect yourself against a, a large amount of potential attack vectors. But the reality is that patching will only protect you against uh, those vectors that are known, the exploits that are targeting known vulnerabilities. There are still plenty of attack vectors that don't leverage vulnerabilities, so patching won't protect you against those. In the case of zero days, uh, there's no immediate mitigations that an organization uh, can put in place to protect themselves against. So, so patching is definitely a good part of a, a large, robust security organization, but it's only one part. So how does FireEye approach vulnerability intelligence and vulnerability management? Obviously, we have um, the, the devices and appliances that hopefully are, are detecting zero days, or at least giving you um, a, a really good opportunity to detect zero days in the wild. You're providing kind of bigger picture long-term management, where along that spectrum does the, the intelligence that you're producing fall? How, how does that fit into a, a total vulnerability management program? So as you said, you know, FireEyes appliances are really good at detecting things, but the detections are only good at the signatures that we put in place. So they're not always going to catch everything, and I think we're very open and understanding about that. So where something like a vulnerability intelligence that my team produces comes into play, is that we've, we've kind of adopted several key philosophies that have shaped our approach. First and foremost, you know, it was important to me that our product is truly an intelligence product and not just another fire hose of vulnerability information. There's plenty of feeds out there that just give customers more information than they can handle. We, we try not to do that. I wanted our vulnerability reporting to offer customers decision advantage and be actionable. Second, I didn't want the product to be purely technical. It had to have a threat focus. To me, it's not enough for a customer to know how bad something could be if it were to be exploited in the wild. Uh, they really need to understand what is happening. What I've seen from a lot of the public discussion of vulnerability um, issues, though, is that it, it does focus on the technical. It says this exploit is at a certain level of criticality, and that's based on, uh, for lack of a, you know, a better way of putting it, that's based on sort of a computer science understanding of what's theoretically possible. But for making business decisions, uh, you know, an organization needs to know if they should take down their operational network or not. Is this actually going to affect the flow of business? Um, so I'm trying to get a sense of how do you evaluate a combination of the technical risk with the threat actor risk that you talked about? How do you combine those two things? Yeah, I, I think they need to be taken into consideration because obviously from a risk perspective, the severity of what could happen is important. If you're not marrying that to the threat aspect, looking at what attackers are doing in the wild, 
you may be putting time and effort into things that may never get targeted by an attacker and leave yourself vulnerable to things that are known to be exploited in the wild. So how do you determine that? How do you determine what attackers are doing in the wild? Well, we have a couple different ways to do that. Um, I think one of the greatest sources of information we have for this is FireEye's own global network of appliances. Uh, we're able to see into real-world attack surfaces uh, to see what attackers are targeting. So we have that advantage to know exactly what's going on in the wild. Uh, additionally, we have underground research capabilities that uh, are actively engaging uh, actors in the wild uh, to determine targeting interests before that threat becomes active. Uh, additionally, we have robust open source collection, uh, and that helps us track several hundred websites, so we're getting information even in the open source. Uh, and last, but definitely not least, um, we at FireEye have a large number of technical analysts from various parts of our organization that are directly involved in the discovery and research of vulnerabilities and exploits. Okay. What, what about non-technical analysts? Do you have to have a technical background to work on your team, or do people, what kind of backgrounds do they have? So most of the people on my team do have technical backgrounds. Um, I myself have a threat background, and, and I'm one of the people that don't have a purely technical background. Uh, but ultimately, some of the characteristics we're looking for more are people who can take disparate pieces of information and tie them together and really kind of look at them holistically and decide, you know, what does this mean to our customers? For people who are looking to get into the industry, is this something you can kind of do like what you, what you did? How, how difficult is it to learn on the job and come up within like a vulnerability management team without the technical background? You came with a different background. Yeah, from like I said, I, I didn't come from a technical background myself, and I'll admit there were definitely days in which you know the, the learning curve was very steep for me, uh, coming from a more uh, liberal arts background. But it's possible, you know, with with a lot of time and dedication, you know, we we have people around us that we can ask, or like for example, I can ask if I have questions if I don't understand the technical aspects entirely. But at the end of the day, you really have to understand the consequences and impact of things, not just the technical. So, Jerry, can you give me an example when, what does it look like when your team uh, sees a threat that others consider to be only a moderate threat, but you're actually warning customers about as being a more severe threat? What does a scenario like that actually look like? So in most cases, when we see something that we don't think is getting the proper attention more widely, um, a lot of times it's going to be based on stuff that we've seen in the wild. So some of those cases will have unique information. Other times it may be more widely known in the security community. But ultimately what we're trying to do is take that unique information and, and we'll reach out to our customers in either threat reporting or vulnerability reports and try to convey to them that the information out there about this vulnerability that you know may not be entirely accurate. And based on what we're seeing, it's actually more or less severe. Yeah, some of the reports I've seen from your team, at least the ones that you know I could understand with my with my limited technical background, some of the reports that I've seen produced by your team that I thought were really interesting sort of drew a distinction between this vulnerability is really severe, but it's also hard to exploit, mm -hmm. and vulnerabilities that maybe weren't as severe but were easier to exploit. Um, I guess I'm curious what makes a vulnerability easier to exploit or more widely, you know, a, a wider number of threat groups can pull it off. You don't have to be this limit, this, the, the more elite, smaller number of threat groups to pull it off. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of factors that our team considers when determining risk. Um, and a lot of those factors have to do on uh, how easy or how difficult it would be for an attacker 
to exploit a vulnerability. Uh, you know, for example, some of those uh, factors include whether privileges are required to, you know, get into something, whether there is user interaction required. Uh, these are two metrics that are involved in the CVSS scores, which are widely known. Uh, but those scores also kind of miss out on a couple other things. You know, for example, other things that we look at are vulnerabilities that impact either uncommon or non-default configurations for those that, based on their very nature, have a low reliability of successful exploitation. So will you just tell us what to patch? Can we just pay you to tell us what to patch on our system? No, we won't ever explicitly tell you what to patch. Our reporting is designed to be a single place of reference that gives stakeholders uh, all the information they would need to make actionable decisions particularly around patch management, but we can't and won't tell you definitively what to patch first. And the reason for that is only our customers understand how their specific environment is set up and its unique needs in terms of a system's criticality. They need to determine what systems are critical to their operations and factor that into their decision-making process when, when it comes to patch management. Even CVSS, which is a widely known uh, vulnerability scoring system, you know, has environmental scores that they can help use for prioritization. So why not just use CVSS scores for prioritization then? Well, a lot of organizations are using CVSS as the sole metric for uh, prioritization. But we at FireEye feel that the rigid structure and lack of nuance severely limits its value. Um, as an example, in 2017, uh, according to NVD scores, um, there were over 1,600 vulnerabilities that were rated critical. However, FireEye Eyesight Intelligence, which considers additional factors in our risk rating and has each report individually scored by one of our analysts, uh, only scored one vulnerability as critical last year, and that, and that was the Apache Struts vulnerability, CVE 2017-5638. To us, a critical issue is one that an organization needs to drop everything they're doing in order to take immediate action to remediate. If an organization was using CVSS alone, they wouldn't know what to prioritize first because there were so many criticals last year. Maybe four or five a day, yeah. Yeah. So recently I found myself using a particular phrase more and more, which is, if everything is critical, then nothing is critical. Well, thank you, Jared. I've got uh, one more question since you've made us a lot smarter on what the problem is today. Uh, what do you see in the future? What's coming next? Or these podcasts live on the internet for a long time, so maybe you'll you'll look prescient down the road. Somebody will be listening to it in their car three months from now. What, what's coming next? Yeah, there's no way I can be wrong. Um, first of all, I think the continued increase in the number of discovered vulnerabilities hasn't showed signs of slowing down. I started focusing on vulnerabilities back in 2011, and at that time, the vendors we cover were collectively producing a little over 300 vulnerabilities per month. Fast forward to today. And essentially, that same group of vendors is producing over 1,000. So the problem of managing these vulnerabilities has been growing, but I'm not so sure that organizations have been scaling uh, their patch management accordingly. The next issue I would mention is the continued prevalence of branded vulnerabilities and less responsible disclosures. Uh, I think we can all name vulnerabilities that receive significant public attention due to the names, logos, and websites that were created just for their disclosure. Uh, the problem is that many of these vulnerabilities fail to meet the level of criticality that justifies the time and attention uh, that's being asked of organizations to investigate and respond. Additionally, 
researchers that are technically following responsible disclosure guidelines, but that share sufficient information that an attacker is able to go out and replicate exploitation themselves, uh, are putting organizations at risk. You know, researchers are not exercising caution and objectivity in ways that they should, and the people that are suffering, unfortunately, are the victims themselves. The last thing I would say is that as some security operations mature, some of them, not all, are failing to understand the role threats play into patch management. And while I may be a little biased in my opinions, you know, I truly believe that an intelligence-led patch management strategy rooted in threat-based information can make a significant difference in an organization's ability to properly protect themselves uh, from those that would do them harm. Jared, thank you for your time today. Uh, it's been really enjoyable. Please join us next time on the FireEye Ion Security Podcast.